God. Uh, last week we, uh, we finished up Daniel chapter 3, and it was in Daniel chapter 3 that we heard Daniel tell us the story of his three friends and their trial by Nebuchadnezzar's furnace, uh, living righteous lives in the midst of ruin, just like Ryan was writing about. That's what brought them to their point of crisis. But they found the presence of God in the midst of their most difficult experience. God saved them and they received material blessing, didn't they? But they acknowledged all the time that righteousness doesn't always have the happy ending that we might wish for in this life. Still though, when we serve God with faithfulness, we can rest assured that he walks with us through every trial. And so we, we kind of digest that lesson. We sit in it a little bit. We, we let it find good home in our hearts. And then we turn the page to Daniel chapter 4, where we encounter a very, very different kind of story. Now, as best we can tell, five or ten years or so have elapsed since the incident at the furnace. And in that time... Jerusalem has been destroyed. The kingdom of Judah has been completely conquered by Babylon. And the city of Babylon, the, the nation of Babylonia, has now been inundated with captives from the fallen kingdom of Judah. Remember that Daniel and his boys were part of a, a very small group of captives who had been taken back to Babylon, oh, maybe 25 years earlier when they were still junior hires. But now the city is awash in brand new, we want to call them refugees, but they really aren't that. They're exiles from their homeland. They've been taken against their will back to Babylon where they will live there. Daniel and his friends are by this time probably 40 years old or so, and they are still serving King Nebuchadnezzar just as they have for the past quarter of a century. And that's where we find ourselves at the beginning of Daniel chapter 4. But as we begin to read Daniel chapter 4, uh, we notice some unusual things. This chapter begins with the text of a royal proclamation that Nebuchadnezzar sent out to his entire empire. And in this proclamation, he affirms the power of the Most High God. Now, we don't know exactly when or under what circumstances this proclamation was made. Is this the result of what happened in chapter 3? Is this perhaps the result of what's about to happen in chapter 4? And then we're going to kind of get a flashback and, and get the backstory. We don't really know. And I suppose it's not necessarily the most important thing. But, but what we have here is the text of a proclamation that, that Nebuchadnezzar gave. And it sounds very good. He's saying, as we've heard him say some before, some very, very good things about the Most High God. But as we've seen before, we have to be so careful in taking worldly authorities at their word when it sounds like they're declaring their allegiance to God. We have to be so careful about that because the rest of chapter 4 shows us that while Nebuchadnezzar maybe was willing to talk the talk, he certainly couldn't walk the walk. The other unique thing about chapter 4 is most of the rest of the chapter is actually written from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective. It's written in the first person. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, did this, and I, Nebuchadnezzar, did that. Now, it's unlikely that he actually sat down with his very own iPad and transcribed all his notes. 
but we can think of it as likely some royal scribe or some person in the court or on the staff who did transcribe Nebuchadnezzar's personal memoirs. And we have them now in scripture. And that's interesting if you're a Bible nerd, because that makes Daniel chapter four, the only chapter in your entire Bible that's actually written from the perspective of a pagan, somebody who worshiped multiple false gods. One more unusual thing about Daniel chapter four, unlike the other stories that we've heard about Nebuchadnezzar that typically begin with some version of Nebuchadnezzar was in a bad mood. That's how most of these stories have begun. Chapter four actually begins with Nebuchadnezzar saying, I was actually in a pretty good mood. He's talking about how good he was feeling. In verse four, he uses the words contented and prosperous to describe his state of mind. But then, right? And isn't that how life changes? But then. But then Nebuchadnezzar has another nightmare. And just like we've seen him do before, he gathers all the advisors in his court in order to get an interpretation, some sort of determination on what the dream means. And just like we've seen before, none of the advisors can interpret it. And just like we've seen before, finally, Daniel rises to the occasion. And so Nebuchadnezzar this time tells Daniel his dream. Remember last time, he didn't even want to tell Daniel what the dream was. But this time he says, okay, I'm going to let you off the hook. I'll actually tell you the dream this time. I'm not going to go into great detail about the dream. I'd invite you to read it for yourself in chapter 4, beginning in about verse 9. The dream involves this very, very large tree that gets chopped down by an angel and the stump of the tree is left covered in chains, chained into the ground. Nebuchadnezzar tells all of this to Daniel. And unlike the last time we had a dream, when Daniel had to go home and gather his friends and they prayed through the night before the revelation was given, this time it it would appear that Daniel immediately knows what this dream is about. God very immediately gives Daniel the ability to interpret the dream. And so Daniel says, hey, Nebuchadnezzar, good news, bad news situation here. Good news is I can tell you right now what that dream meant. Bad news, you're not going to like it. (laughs) You're not going to like it. Nebuchadnezzar's like, come on, Daniel, we've been through a lot together. You know, I I can trust you. Lay it down for me. What's this dream all about? And Daniel essentially tells him, he says, Nebuchadnezzar, you're the tree. You know, you're this great and powerful figure and all the world comes and finds shelter under your branches. Um, But you know how the tree got chopped down? (laughs) Daniel says, Nebuchadnezzar, God's going to humble you. He's going to bring you down and you are going to be left out in the fields with the wild animals like a stump in the ground. You're going to be in verse 25. He says, you will be driven away from people and you will live with the wild animals. Daniel says, moreover, God says, you are going to stay that way for an extended period of time until you willingly acknowledge the power and the authority of God. And when that happens, you will be restored to your position in the kingdom of Babylon. Daniel says, King Nebuchadnezzar, if I may, if I may, one more thing. Can I, can I just give you one piece of advice here? Neb says, sure. Daniel says, this isn't in the dream, but if, if I could just give you one piece of advice, would you, would you repent now? Would, would you humble yourself now? Because who knows? 
if you change your ways now, maybe God will, will relent. Maybe he will change his mind. Maybe he will determine that your humility now and your repentance in the face of this interpretation is, is enough and he will stay his hand and you can avoid this terrible thing. Uh, it's not my notes, but could we pause again just a moment? Like this is righteousness and ruin, right? Remember, Daniel is here against his will. And, and he's living in this evil empire. And he's ministering out of kindness and compassion to the evilest one of all at, at the empire. And I find that fascinating. I think there's a tremendous lesson there for us who would live according to the principles of the kingdom of heaven while making our lives in the kingdoms of this world. How do we interact with the world around us? Daniel, Daniel wants God's best. For Nebuchadnezzar, doesn't he? Yes. And, he, and so he doesn't say, well, good for you. You got it coming to you. <laughs> no, he, he doesn't do that. He says, Neb, would you give this some thought? I, really, I would like for you to repent. My heart is that your heart would be right before God. But apparently, Nebuchadnezzar ignores him. It would seem that Nebuchadnezzar doesn't take Daniel's advice. And so we pick up, and this is where I am going to read directly from Scripture, in Daniel chapter 4, verse 28. It says, But all these things did happen to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, do you like that? So a whole year goes by. He had this dream. At what point during that year do you think Nebuchadnezzar thought, Escape that one. I guess I'm good to go. But no, 12 months later, he was taking a walk out on the flat roof of the royal palace in Babylon. And as he looked out across the city, he said, <laughs> look at this great city of Babylon. By my own mighty power, I have built this beautiful city as my royal residence to display my majestic splendor. And while these words were still in his mouth, a voice called down from heaven. Oh, King Nebuchadnezzar, this message is for you. Well, this isn't going to go well. <laughs> you are no longer ruler of this kingdom. You will be driven from human society. You will live in the fields with the wild animals and you will eat grass like a cow. Seven periods of time will pass while you live this way until you learn that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world and gives them to anyone he chooses. That same hour, the judgment was fulfilled and Nebuchadnezzar was driven from human society. He ate grass like a cow and he was drenched with the dew of heaven. He lived this way until his hair was as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. Wow. I mentioned before that one of the fun things about the book of Daniel is that Daniel gives us so much context that many of the events that he describes, we can actually place and date according to what we know from secular history. And part of that is because the ancient Babylonians had a pretty well-developed PR department. They had a very large propaganda ministry and they were forever making proclamations like the one we read at the very beginning 
of chapter 4. And so secular historians have plenty of documents from ancient Babylonia, uh, from this era in particular, that describe what was going on in their kingdom. But in all of those documents, there is no mention of King Nebuchadnezzar having gone insane and living as a wild animal for seven years. You can't find that press release anywhere in secular history. And that, of course, has led uh, people to question this, this part of the Bible. Well, did this ever actually happen? Now, a couple of comments I want to make about that because this is such a weird story, isn't it? It's such a weird story. I would point out that technically the Bible never says that it took seven years. Uh, the phrase, as it's best translated there, you saw is seven periods of time. Could that have been seven years? It certainly could have been. It could have been, I suppose, seven seasons or, or seven months, seven cycles of the moon. All of these things, at least by the language, are somewhat possible. Uh, it couldn't have been as short. You might want to say, well, maybe it was just seven days, and that's why we don't know about it from secular history. Well, that seems unlikely because the scripture's clear. His hair grew out long and his nails grew out long. Like there's a lot of, you know, Howard Hughes kind of stuff going on here. Uh, it, it would have taken quite some time for that to happen. Uh, and I can tell you that traditionally Bible scholars have presumed that this was in fact seven years. So why don't we know about it from, from secular history? Well, actually, if you think about it, there, there is a seven-year period in secular history during the reign of Nebuchadnezzar at right about this time when the Babylonian PR department is conspicuously quiet. For a period of about seven years, we really don't have too many of those press releases that they were usually so faithful about putting out there in the world. Little to no mention is made of the greatness of our, our mighty king or the advancements in the empire's authority. And this has led people to question, well, why not? Why are we so conspicuously silent in the record of history for seven years? Well, of course, many biblical historians have speculated that that's because that is precisely the seven-year period in which Nebuchadnezzar was incapacitated. He lost his mind, and so his advisors kept his condition under wraps. He was kept, perhaps, in a secret courtyard somewhere in the castle so that the Babylonian people, and more importantly, their enemies, would not discover his condition. And meanwhile, his closest advisors, perhaps even people just like Daniel, continued the day-to-day -day operation of the empire, made sure nothing to see here, business as usual, we're just going. Now you might think that's a little bit far-fetched, but if you're a student of history, you'll remember that episodes like this are actually far more common than we might think in ancient history and even in modern history. The movie, based on the play by a similar name, The Madness of King George, chronicles of the British Empire's attempt to keep business going as per usual as George III slowly descended into insanity in the late part of the 18th century. The students of American history might remember that Woodrow Wilson after uh, being uh, the president when World War I was won, just after World War I, suffered a debilitating stroke and for 18 months, the final 18 months of his presidency, essentially no one ever saw Woodrow Wilson except for his personal doctor 
and his wife Edith. When there were decisions that needed to be made or, or bills that needed to be signed or things like that, Edith would take them and she would say, I'll just go into the president's bedroom and, and take care of things. And she would emerge sometimes later with a decision or a signature or whatever was required. On a handful of occasions, she dressed President Wilson up in his coat and propped him up in bed so a photographer could come in and take a picture for the papers. Most of the pictures from that time uh, have a coat or a blanket over the left side of his body to hide the fact that he was paralyzed. Modern historians have looked back over that era of American history and speculated the likelihood that it was Edith Wilson, not Woodrow Wilson, who was running our country for 18 months. Things like that happen, and perhaps something like that happened to Nebuchadnezzar. We don't really know. The story isn't included in Scripture so that we can have a better understanding of ancient Babylonian politics. This story is included in Scripture so that we could understand the problem that pride creates in our lives. Pride is one of the hallmark elements of spiritual ruin. It weighs us down. It destroys us. It brings ruin upon us. Pride is not just an unsavory attitude. Pride is a mental burden we weren't designed to bear. Have you ever thought of it that way? It's actually a mental burden, and you were not created to carry that burden. I think most of us understand at some level that God doesn't want us to be prideful, Uh, If you grew up in a tradition that talks about the seven deadly sins, pride is listed among those. Uh, One of the verses that probably a a few of us could recite by heart comes from the book of Proverbs, where it says pride comes before a, a fall, a fall. We know that pride is a bad thing. We know that pride puts us on the naughty list, so to speak. But I think it's important that we understand that pride isn't just an unseemly character trait. Pride is actually a tool of ruin. God doesn't want you to be prideful because he knows that pride will ruin you. Pride will destroy you like a heavy wrecking ball. It's a massive burden and it wreaks havoc in our lives. We weren't designed to survive the ruinous destruction that pride causes. Pride comes before a fall. The fall that's being referenced in that verse in Proverbs 16 isn't a punishment from God. It's the inevitable outcome of pride itself. Speaking of pride comes before a fall, there's the fall. When we're talking about the Bible and we refer to the fall, we're talking about Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, God's forbidden fruit in the garden. Genesis chapter 3 tells us that the serpent told Eve that eating the fruit would make her like God himself. And that's why Adam and Eve ate. Apparently, they felt like equality with God was something that they were quite worthy of, quite able to uphold. In their pride, they reached out for a burden that they weren't designed to carry, and the result was the fall. Nebuchadnezzar was prideful. Did you hear it in his words? I'm going to repeat some of them for you. He says, by my own power, I have built this beautiful city as my royal residence to display my majestic splendor. And even though 
to this point in the story, Nebuchadnezzar has been the source of ruin. Now his unrighteous pride has made him the victim of ruin. But his ruin wouldn't last forever, as we know from the dream. We're going to pick up the story in verse 34. Now being told once again from Nebuchadnezzar's standpoint. He says, after this time had passed, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven. My sanity returned, and I praised and worshipped the Most High and honored the one who lives forever. If you read from your scriptures there, you will see the text of a hymn of praise that Nebuchadnezzar composes extolling God. Then picking up again in verse 36, when my sanity returned to me, so did my honor and glory and kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out and I was restored as head of my kingdom with even greater honor than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and glorify and honor the king of heaven. All his acts are just and true and he is able to humble the proud. Spanish author Miguel de Cervantes tells us the story of Don Quixote, the man of La Mancha. Do you know the story? Don Quixote was quite insane, wasn't he? He believed that he was something much bigger than he actually was. He believed that his lowly workhorse, tired from plowing the fields, was actually a steed worthy of the bravest knight. Don Quixote believed that the windmills he saw on the horizon were evil giants, and so he attacked them like the brave warrior he believed himself to be. It occurs to me that one of the hallmarks of insanity is that the insane have misjudged the size and the scope of things in this world. They have looked on esteem with with things that simply do not matter. They have placed in high regard some matters that should have been of little or no consequence. And pride invites us to do exactly the same thing with our view of ourselves. Pride gives us an insane concept of our own status and of our own importance. But humility restores our sanity. That, that's, what, that's precisely what happened to Nebuchadnezzar, isn't it? He was prideful and he lost his mind. But when he humbled himself before God, by his own words, Nebuchadnezzar says, that's when my sanity was restored. Humility restores our sanity. Can I ask you this today? Are things getting a little out of kilter in your world? Do you feel like you're losing your grip? Oftentimes, when we go through a season like that, or when we have experiences like that, the world gives us this advice, just, you know, pump yourself up, man. You can handle it. You're a rock star. You're a world beater. You can do it. How many times have you heard this advice? You can accomplish anything you set your mind to. Well, no offense, but solutions like that are insane. I can't accomplish anything I set my mind to. Sadly, my career with the Joffrey Ballet is never going to happen. <laughs> I could set my mind to it all I want. I could stand here today and tell you thousands of things that I could set my mind to all you want. I'm never going to do it. 
Oh, come on, Dan. Get rid of that negative attitude. You gotta believe in yourself, man. You gotta pump yourself up. You're bigger than that. If you think I'm dancing with the Joffrey, you're insane. You're insane. Maybe, maybe instead, maybe, maybe scripture gives us a better alternative here. Maybe when the things of this world loom large, like, like windmills on the horizon, maybe you would do better to humble yourself in God's sight. Maybe you would do better to take note of just how small you are. Because that's, that's the direct route to sanity. Because when I remind myself just how small I am, I open up my mind to the reality of just how big he is. And that is exactly how my mind was meant to function. Do we understand? That's how God created me to be. He designed me to work that way. This is like the cheat sheet to life here. It's not about me pumping myself up. It's about humility. Can I quickly say it's not about false humility. I happen to think I'm a decent piano player. I'm comfortable with that. If you come and tell me, Dan, I think you're a good piano player, I feel it would be wrong for me to say, no, I stink. Yeah, I, you know, I, I just really stink. You know, that, that would be false humility. If you come and, and tell me, Dan, I think you're a good piano player, you know what I think I have? I have an opportunity to glorify God. I have an opportunity to say thank you. Thank you for that. Man, God's given me a gift. I'm just grateful for the ability to use it. But saying, no, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty bad. I'm robbing glory from God. That's not making God bigger. You want to give me a compliment? <laughs> Fine. <laughs> that's, that's good. <laughs> Anybody want to do that right now? <laughs> You want to give me a compliment, that's fine. But my responsibility is to receive that compliment with grace, but receive it with humility and magnify God. You see, when I get smaller, God gets bigger. When I get too big, at least in my own mind, I edge him out. But when I get smaller, it opens my mind up to the reality of just how big God is. And back to what I was saying, that's how he made us. That's how he designed our brains to work. Your brain wasn't designed to run the software that says you're big enough, you're strong enough, and gosh darn it, people like you. That's not how your brain was designed. There's a psychologist from the University of California at Berkeley who has recently published a book detailing his findings on what he refers to as awe. The human emotion of awe. And he loosely defines it this way. The feeling of being in the presence of something vast that transcends your understanding of the world. I'm going to read that again. The feeling of being in the presence of something vast that transcends your understanding of the world. That's awe, right? The state of being in awe. And this psychologist has published this book. I've seen it written about a number of different places. It's, it's groundbreaking, apparently. 
Uh, among his findings are that regular experiences of awe have positive physical effects on our bodies and positive psychological impacts on our bodies. We need to be in awe on a regular basis in order to be healthy. According to this guy's research, our minds and our bodies were designed to function best when we regularly encounter and acknowledge our own smallness. Well, duh, <laughs> you know, like I, I'm, I'm a little bit lost on why this is a new idea. I'm a little bit lost on why this is a new concept because the people of God for millennia have been saying, my soul needs to encounter the vastness of God on a regular basis. My soul needs to acknowledge the smallness of me on a regular basis because if it doesn't, I'm just not right. I'm just not right. If I could translate this into Christian speak, what, what, what the psychologist has written, here's what I think he meant to say. Oh Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made, and when I see the stars and when I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed, then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee. How great thou art, how great thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee. How great thou art, how great thou art. That's awe. That's awe. That's awe. And we were designed to live in that state of awe. God's people have known that from the very, very beginning. The world is inviting us to pump ourselves up, to, with an insane mind, think of ourselves as greater than we ought. But the word of God, the call of Jesus on our lives says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. And that leads me to one final thought about Nebuchadnezzar's experience with sanity. Clear minds worship God. That's, that's what they do. When we see, I can see clearly now. I'm just singing everything today. <laughs> can we just have a sing-along for the rest of this? I'm going to throw the rest of these notes away, and we're going we're to do a little karaoke here in church. When our minds are clear, what happens? We worship. We worship. I see that there's a moment of clarity, right? And we worship. When our minds have been cleared, we worship. It's what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. His sanity was re, re his sanity, let me try again, was restored, and the very first thing he does is worship. Verse 37, I read it before, it says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and glorify and honor the King of heaven. That's when we see clearly. The Bible says we don't always see things clearly, though actually what the Bible says is that this side of heaven, we don't ever see things clearly. Book of 1 Corinthians, we see 
For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. But then, but then, in heaven, we're going to see face to face. And I assure you, when Paul wrote that, he wasn't thinking of the, the, the lit mirror that's over the sink in your bathroom. He was thinking of a piece of metal that was polished as best it could so you could kind of get a sense of whether your toga was on right or not. <laughs> now that's kind of the best we do. We, we, we don't really see things clearly. Oh, there's coming a day when we'll see in HD, 1080p, whatever the numbers are on the TV that you just bought, we will see as if face to face. Right now, we don't, we don't see so clearly, do we? But every once in a while, every once in a while, the Bible tells us the story of somebody who gets just a momentary glimpse of the reality that we can't quite see yet. Moses hears a voice coming from a burning bush. The women at the tomb find angels where a corpse should have been. John has a vision of, of heaven's throne room. Even just a few pages ago in our story of Daniel, we read about Nebuchadnezzar himself realizing there was a fourth man in the furnace. Every once in a while, humankind gets a glimpse, just, just a glimpse, just a peek at a reality that one day we will all see into all eternity. And every one of those times, every, every time it happens, worship breaks out. Worship breaks out. Every time we get a glimpse of who God really is, every time our minds are cleared of the clutter of ruin, if only even for an instant, every time it happens, worship breaks out. Even, even Nebuchadnezzar, who I think I have done a decent job of painting as a big buffoon in this series, right? Spiritually speaking, this guy just can't get out of his own way. But even Nebuchadnezzar in that one moment of clarity says, my Lord and my God, he is mighty. He is mighty. He is mighty. When we see clearly worship breaks out, it's the same for all of us. When our minds are clear enough to understand who we really are and to see God for who he really is, we can't help but worship him. We can't help but proclaim his greatness. We can't help but give him all the glory and honor and praise. And that's what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. And so once again, not for the first time, we read a story that ends with Nebuchadnezzar glorifying God. Will it last? Will it last? Actually, we don't know. The Bible really doesn't tell us. There is no next story about Nebuchadnezzar. We're going to continue over the coming weeks in our stories about Daniel, but Nebuchadnezzar doesn't make another appearance in the book of Daniel. And so some people have read the Bible, they've read the book of Daniel, and they've wondered if at this point, because seems to end on that positive note. They've wondered, did Nebuchadnezzar experience a real, uh, a lasting conversion? Did Nebuchadnezzar become a righteous man at this point? Did it take? 
I suppose you're entitled to your thoughts on that matter. Would you be terribly offended if I told you I was pessimistic? <laughs> Babylonian history offers no evidence that Nebuchadnezzar fully embraced Daniel's faith or the, the, the faith of the Jewish people. The Babylonian PR department gets back into business once Nebuchadnezzar's sanity is restored and they get back to you know, all their press releases and all their propaganda. We have that in museums and we see right through to the end of his reign, they're always writing about how he has been chosen by the Babylonian gods and, and how he has been given power by, and they mention all the false gods. They never mention Yahweh in any of that. And then, I mean, honestly, and, and for, I'm, not, you know, I'm not preaching, maybe I ought to get behind the pulpit here. Um, it's just how I see the story. You're entitled to see it a different way, but I, I'm having trouble escaping Nebuchadnezzar's track record, right? He's a known offender. We've heard him praise God before and then go right back to his old ways. I hope he made a real lasting change in his life, but I, I really, I, have, I wonder. I wonder, I, don't, I wonder. Because what we've seen from Nebuchadnezzar so far, that's not what real change looks like. Just saying the right words and then going back to your old ways, that's not what real change looks like. We've talked a lot today about having a clear mind, a, a mature mind. And you could argue, I think, pretty well that Nebuchadnezzar had developed that, at least temporarily, maybe even more than that. By the end of this story, he knows who to say God is. He understands. He gets it here. But I see no evidence that his heart has been changed. I see no evidence that his habits have changed. I see no evidence that his story changed. If any of those things happened, they happened after the biblical story falls silent about Nebuchadnezzar. I, I just don't see it. And that concerns me because becoming mature in our faith requires all of those things. And so whether Nebuchadnezzar did or didn't, we can, we can speculate forever about that. But with certainty, one cautionary tale I think we need to take from his story is that simply believing that God is who he said he is, simply believing that with our minds is insufficient. Similarly, stringing together a series of experiences and encounters with the power and the presence of God insufficient on its own. More is required of us, more is desired for us because God wants all of us. God wants all of us. Can we hear that with two different meanings today? Can we hear the Spirit of God say, God wants all of us. No, no one is excluded from this. It doesn't matter if your backstory would make Nebuchadnezzar blush. You understand what I'm saying? God wants all of us. No one has been disqualified from the grace of God. No one is so far from him that he's not willing to come pick you up. Right? God wants all of us. But can we hear it a second way as well? God wants all of us. He wants everything that you have. 
He wants everything that you are. He doesn't want just a portion of you. This story has been a story about sanity and insanity. I think that's important, but I think it's more important today that we pause and remind ourselves that that's not the whole story. God doesn't just want your mind. God wants all of us. He wants to illuminate our minds, but he also wants to soften our hearts. He also wants to transform our habits. He wants to rewrite our stories because God wants all of us. And then when he has us, mm, when he has us, he invites us to a table. I'm going to ask you to prepare your communion emblems today. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're in right relationship with God, you have been invited to this table. I'm going to pause for a moment because just before the meal is served, I think it would be fitting that one more invitation is given. The meal is a fellowship meal for the people of God. And so the word gives us a a lot of instructions about the communion meal, as we call it, the Eucharist, whatever the Lord's Supper, all of these titles mean essentially the same thing. The word gives us instructions, and one of the most important is be very, very careful about choosing to sit down at this table. Yes, we have all in the family of God among the people. We have all been invited, but be very careful that you don't sit down at the table until you've entered into that relationship that God invites you to. I love Thanksgiving because you get to gather with the family at the table. I recommend that you don't just walk into a stranger's house and sit down and ask where the stuffing is. And that's essentially what the word tells us. It says, yeah, it's dinner time, come and eat, but, but make sure you're in relationship. Make sure you're part of the family before you just pull up a seat. Hey, here's the good news. We can accomplish that in about 15 seconds here. We don't need to fill out any paperwork. We don't need to wait six to eight weeks for your forms to be processed. We don't have to await a background check because even if we ran your background check, the Holy Spirit would return it and say, I can't read it, it's been covered by the blood of Jesus. Right? We don't have to wait for any of that. We can, we can process your paperwork in real time. Oh, and by the way, that doesn't mean you get a provisional pass into the kingdom of heaven. And later on, we'll go back and check and we might have to kick you out at that point when we find out who you really are. No, 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 no. That's not how that, this works. I'm talking about we can just get this done right here and right now. So let's do that before we eat. Because I would hate to think that we're all sitting here eating our Thanksgiving meal together with somebody right in our midst who was saying, I can't come to the table. I'd hate to think that we were overlooking anybody. So can I ask you to bow your heads right now so that we all can have a moment of privacy? I'd like to just pray for you. And if you have concerns about where your relationship is with God, I'd like to pray for you specifically. 
If you've never accepted his invitation to be gathered unto him, to be a part of this kingdom of heaven that we're talking about, if you're not even sure what all of that means, but boy, would you like to find out. If you've been overwhelmed by, I mean, I'm not calling you insane. I'm just saying if you've been overwhelmed by the trials of this life because they just feel so big and you'd like to get a taste of what it means to look at the greatness of God, to live your life in awe, if you'd like to know what it looks like to be into the family, well, I'd like you to pull up a seat to the table. What's required of you is to just tell God that that's the invitation you want to accept. What's required of you is to, in whatever fashion you feel most comfortable, speaking to him in this moment and saying, God, I want to know you. I want to follow Jesus because he's the one that can reveal you into my life. If that's you today, would you mind just lifting your eyes and making eye contact with me really quickly so that we can pray together? I'm going to pray for the whole group together, but I'd like to know that there's an individual or two or three that the Holy Spirit is specifically working on. Thank you. Thank you. I know I said 15 seconds and I've already lied. I'm going to ask God for forgiveness for that. But I need to tell you one other thing. It's one and done in the kingdom. Once you've done this, you don't need to keep doing it every week. You don't need to keep doing it every day. You just, you want to keep serving him. You know how clearly you see things right now? When we see clearly, we worship. It's what we do. The invitation is forever. So let's pray. Father, thank you for the invitation we have to come to your table. Thank you that the saving power of Jesus is, is not just for a moment, but it's for eternity. Thank you, Lord, that the background check on our lives is irrelevant because we have been covered. We have been covered by the righteousness. See, we look around and we, we, we just see ruin. Right? I know, I know how ruinous my life is. But you see that it's been covered with the righteousness of Jesus. Lord, we have spent so much idle time wasting trying to fix ourselves when all we needed to do was surrender ourselves to the covering that Jesus gives us. And so for those who have looked up today, for those who in their hearts have cried out to you anew and afresh, I pray that you would just assure them in this moment that they are yours, they are covered, and that there is a seat for them at this table. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. And now that everybody's found their seat, would you take the bread? Would you remember what Jesus has said? That this bread was his body and it was broken for each one of us. He wants all of us, doesn't he? Yes. Would you receive it? And would you take this cup, an emblem of the blood that he spilled, that very blood that I referenced that covers our past, covers our stories, renders our background check unreadable to God. Would you take it and remember that you are his?
Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you, Lord, for the reminder of how small you are, uh, how small we are. <laughs> Excuse me. Oh, in case I was struggling with humility, you gave me one more just there, Lord, didn't you? Thank you for the reminder of how small we are and how big you are. I pray for those who have entered your kingdom today. Would you bless them? Would you encourage them? Would you help them to grow? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. And everybody says, Amen. Amen. Amen.